if your heart is naked enough and exposed enough to break that visibly, it's also primed to do something extraordinary. That was Lauren Fleshman, and this is the Running on Ohm podcast. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and here at Running on Ohm, we dive deep into long-form, unedited conversations with pioneers of the mind-body-spirit connection. Some of the people I bring on for all of you, you may know and revere, and others are undiscovered gems. So thank you for trusting me with your headspace and your heart space. Today's guest, Lauren Fleshman, if you tune into Rue regularly, you've definitely heard before. Lauren has been on the podcast new numerous times, from free-flowing interviews to the more structured question-and-answer Ask Lauren Fleshman series. In today's conversation with Lauren, it's almost a year since we first recorded an episode together, and we thought it'd be a great opportunity to pause, reflect, and take stock of all that's happened to Lauren, including her recent retirement from professional running. Lauren's more than just a runner. She's a coach, a mother, co-founder of Picky Bars, entrepreneur, and writer. In this podcast, Lauren tells the backstory of her retirement and what it was like for it to be shared in the New York Times this past summer. Lauren reflects on leading her first ever Wilder running and writing retreat and the importance of taking retreats in our own lives. Lauren shares about her experience watching the heartbreaking 800 meter women's final at the US Olympic trials and what it brought up for her. She opens up with her honest perspective on the gender and doping issues at the 2016 Rio Olympics. Lauren also reveals what her relationship to running is like now post-retirement. And lastly, Lauren previews what's next of her, including the release of a new book. It's always an honor to have Lauren on Rue, and we love to hear from all of you. Whether it be a specific story Lauren shared or a learning point, I know that thousands of people are tuning into these conversations, but the power for me lies in what you take away from them and how you put them into action in your own life. So reach out as always via Twitter or Instagram to let us know what resonated. You ready to dive deep in today's conversation with Lauren Fleshman? We're in the house for... We had 37 people this weekend. It is so quiet in here right now compared to yesterday at this time. Yeah, it is so quiet. So what happened this weekend? Tell me. (laughs) The Wilder Retreat, the first Wilder running and riding retreat happened four days, 30 women, seven helpers. It was insane. It was amazing. It was everything I hoped for plus a (laughs) hundred. Plus a (laughs) hundred and ten. Yeah. How did you feel about it? Oh my gosh. Um, Overwhelmed, amazed, in awe, exhausted, all of it. (laughs) Yeah, it was amazing. I think like we've been working on it for months and it's really crazy to work on a project to be at the computer, to be talking with people online, to be working through spreadsheets and then like all of a sudden it comes to life. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't come to life until like people are actually inhabiting the space. Yeah, I think that was – I've never hosted a retreat before. And I think that was the scariest part for me was you're building the infrastructure and the systems with this giant question mark of who are the people going to be that fill those systems and that schedule that you built and what will they bring to it. Um, and I was just – so happy with the group that we had. And I think that 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 was just so magical for me. I was just watching it unfold and then feeling like I had no idea how I was going to be affected by the retreat. I hadn't even really thought about 
the impact it would have on me. I was in planning it, was just thinking about what kind of experience and impact do I want to help facilitate for others. But you can't, you cannot ever remain unchanged when you spend significant time in a room full of women. It's impossible. So what would you say was the impact on you? A lot of things, but I think um, I felt really humble the entire time because I have never taught a retreat and I had you there who has, and then um, Marianne Elliott, who's done countless. And I really felt like I, I didn't feel like I was coming in and trying to pretend that I just knew this space and knew what I was doing and was wearing a mask or whatever. I just came in and was like, I have the people that I need that know the parts that I don't know, and I'm just going to trust them, and I'm going to learn from them. And um, and that was – it just made it so comfortable, just not trying to be somebody that I'm not. And so, yeah, I was learning from both of you. I was learning from the women there. I would be immersed in the experience itself, and then I would be kind of 10 feet above looking down at the experience as a whole, at what retreats can do, um, where the little pockets of magic spring up that you didn't have on the schedule, and how you have to make space for those things to happen. I think that was a really cool takeaway for me. Yeah. So when you say the magic, like what kind of magic did you witness or were there certain moments that you felt like were really magical? I think that almost all the incredible magic happened in the spaces between things. I mean, they're obviously in some of the workshops I could see things happening, but women who had just met 24 to 48 hours before um, really seeing one another and talking to one another as if they'd been friends for a lifetime. And I felt really proud that the environment that we had created and the, the space that we had created helped facilitate that, that women were trusting women and really letting each other in. And that's where a lot of magic was happening. I mean, you could, by the last day, um, it didn't matter which four women happened to be available to go out you know, on the river. Everybody was cool with everyone. It was like we were all equals. There was no um, hierarchies or cliques or whatever. Or pecking order. No pecking order whatsoever. I mean, you could have partnered me up randomly with any five to do something, and I'd be like, great. <laughs> it was crazy. I just didn't expect that. I haven't been in a, I haven't been in an environment like that before. Well, if you think about it, like probably the primary women's environments you've been in have been sports teams. Yeah. You know, and that's how I was I was thinking about it. My cross-country team in college was 30 women. Mm-hmm. And there was a very clear, you know, order of who was the fastest, who was the slowest. But it was a supportive environment. But that's always an underlying, like, your competitors. That's right. And teammates. Yeah. Whereas here, I think because of that beauty that it wasn't just about riding. So, sure, we have most experienced to least experienced riders. And it wasn't just about running with most experienced to least experienced runners, it was about exploring the combination of the two together, really. And nobody was an expert in that. And it was unknown which combination of experience levels in either would lead to um, deeper understandings or epiphanies or realizations or things worthy of sharing to the group. It was, it was truly like it could come from anyone and it could come from anywhere. And I loved that. 
I loved that. And I loved when we were looking through the applications and we were assembling this group and being mindful of having people whose careers have been writing and having people who wrote feverishly in a notebook until they were 12 and then gave it up. Um, you know, and then professional athletes and people who've been running for a year. I think, I think there was, it was kind of a chance that we took thinking that that would be a good idea, but I'm really glad we did that. Me too. Me too. I know that there'll be listeners and people who've never gone on a retreat or might think, oh, wow, that's such a privileged thing to do. Or I don't have the money to invest in that. Or why would I go on a retreat? Like, what do you say to people who might not understand the value of going on retreat? Oh, I think it's like definitely worth investing in. And there's retreats at all kinds of price points as well. But <clears throat> it is a privileged thing to do. And that was a comment that I heard, you know, we would do circular check-ins with everyone fairly regularly. And the word privileged would come up many times. And I think that actually, it was one of the things that um, I was proud of was that, yes, this is a privileged thing to do. But if you, you, if you are aware of your privilege versus entitled, um, I think that that is, you, you can't, take away the fact that you have the resources to do something like this. That is your reality. But owning, yes, this is a privilege. I am privileged to get to do this. So um, I think that, um, that finding workshops, I mean, even just weekend workshops to do with writing or something else that you love, it's just so powerful to step outside your normal life and all the things pulling on you and all the people that need you to get just a little bit of time where you get to look inward and you get to um, create space for yourself to grow because there's so much inertia in our lives that we we just do the things we've always done or whatever. And I feel like I felt the power of um, that space in myself too at the end of the weekend. Okay, I can, I've had some shifts in my mind and like I could reorganize some things. When I get home, there's some little shifts that I can make in my life that line up better with how I'm feeling in my body right now or in my mind right now. And um, and one of those things is, is spending more time at home, actually. I just really feel like that's something I want to do is be at home and be with my son more, you know. Yeah. yeah. What what shifted for you that made you think about that, made you think about do during the weekend? I think just the power of time like the power of what four days with those, I'll include the people that were working with us, 37 women, the impact you can have on one another, it was just really, um, that, that applies to everyone everywhere. You don't have to be in a retreat setting. That's happening. You're having an impact and people are having an impact on you all the time. And it just made me feel more uh, like I wanted to be more intentional with my time. And already, I just noticed a difference already. My time with Jude at breakfast this morning before going to work, I was much more present. I mean, my I never unplugged my phone. We were having breakfast, and we were having breakfast. We were having a conversation, and um, and I was able to be more patient. Yeah, and I hope maybe it'll be just for like two weeks until the retreat buzz wears off. But I think if if I can ride that out and and make some patterns and you know, that I'll get the positive feedback from that. It'll be easier to maintain. Yeah. yeah. I think it's so easy in our lives with people we see every day, our family and friends. 
either to take those relationships for granted or get stuck in behavioral patterns Mm -hmm. with like, we don't have enough time for each other. This is like my allotted time for them. So I think it's really cool. You're challenging yourself in that way of being like, yeah, I want to have more space Mm -hmm. for my son, whether it's just the mental space I have with him when I'm actually with him in person or creating more actual like time, time. Yeah. And, and the other thing I learned too was um, the power of transitions. That was something that Marianne Elliott really brought home for me was, you know, we'd be having lunch and then there'd be a writing workshop that was on the schedule next. And we wouldn't just dive into the writing from having this boisterous, loud lunch. We would get in a circle, calm down, take one sentence each, or just do some sort of thing that helps shift the energy into a space that is better suited for what we were going to do next. I never do that in my regular life. I'm understanding now the concept, like the word meditation has always been really intimidating to me. But I think that even just taking three breaths in my car before coming back from work to stepping into my family life so that I'm not carrying the residue of whatever I was just doing into the house, the thing that has me still in the house, but halfway somewhere else that I just was because of my retreat experience with transitions and just seeing how, how much more quickly, if you've transitioned properly before going into a new thing, how much more quickly you can dive deep into the next thing. Uh, Just seeing that, I'm like, wow, that was super powerful. I can do that at home. I can do that with my husband. I can do that with my work. I just need to do less of this carrying a ghost tail <laughs> into things. The ghost tail, I love You it. know, yeah. I, mean, I feel like it's like this wispiness behind me of whatever I was just doing. And um, yeah, I'm just really aware of it now. Yeah. And then it like all it takes is, as you said, like three breaths. Yeah. To ground. Yep. And to signal to yourself to be like, okay, this is what I'm doing. But I feel like as a runner, you understand the power of warming up and cooling down. Oh, yeah. And dynamics. And like there's something, I think, with running and the ritual of it that does, you have to mark transition in your running. Especially when you compete. Because when when you run, you can kind of have a mile or two to work those things out. Where it might take 15 minutes before you've forgotten whatever it was you were just doing and you catch yourself lost in your thoughts. And you're like, oh, now I'm flying, right? But in a race, you can, you don't have time. You, you don't have those miles to spare. You need to be present, focused from when the gun goes off. So I, I do have those skills. And that's one of the things that came up over and over again in this retreat <clears throat> was a lot, a lot of people here were more, I'd say most people were more comfortable in the running space than they were in the writing space, or they felt like they'd ha- they had a more uh, complete toolkit already. And the types of realizations I think that were happening a lot throughout the weekend were, oh, hey, I do have that skill that I can apply to writing too. It's not like I'm starting from scratch and I need to learn how to, um, how to warm up, right? I know how to warm up. I do that in running. Or um, I know how to push through. I know how to show up even on the crappy days and run anyway, but I don't know how to show up on the crappy writing days and write, and then you, you, but you, then it's kind of brought to your attention. Wait, I do that every single day in running. So I actually do have that skill. I just have to look at my writing the way I look at my running. And so I think that w- kind of circling back to what we were talking about before with transitions, I, I do know how to do that. I do it for my racing and I, I'm one of the best in the world at it. So 
yeah, it was, it was, it was just so, it's just crazy when you're like, okay, I'm 34 years old and I just learned that I can take three deep breaths and that I'll have a more amazing experience or present experience or be able to engage better with my family if I do that first. It's like, wow, <laughs> after 21 years of doing it in races, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think what I was amazed by and watching you kind of navigate the retreat space is like there was such a lightness to your energy. I mean, a lot of people wanted your attention and, you know, wanted to talk with you and be around you. And you were holding space for a lot of people to do some deep work. Yet you were just like you were having so much fun and (laughs) really light about the whole entire way you handled it. And I feel like there's been a huge shift for you in the past couple months. And I mean this conversation we're recording almost a year after our first podcast together what do you feel like that lightness in your energy is and like has it been to do with the retirement oh it definitely has I mean a year ago when we had this podcast I just feel like I had a burden the burden of so many questions that feeling that something needed to change I thought I maybe knew what was going to need to change but I was afraid of what would be lost. Um, I don't know. I just feel like I had a lot more fear. And a lot of people this weekend asked me about retirement and how it was going. And it's, I think um, a lot of people asked me if I was struggling after having retired with what life is like now. And I was like, no, the hardest part was getting to be able to make the decision. For me, that's where all the turmoil was. By the time I made the decision, I'm, I'm I'm very fortunate that I'm in a sport where you make the decision. If I had been on a soccer team or something, they make the decision for you. And then you have to kind of, whoa, figure it out. <laughs> or you get cut from something, right? Or fired from your job. I mean, those kinds of transitions are, they have very difficult periods of time afterwards. But I did all that swimming in the muck for, God, a year before I made the decision. So I do feel lighter. I feel... I, I think all those things, like I, I was afraid which relationships will be left, um, which friendships are actually dependent on having pro running in common, or, you know, which um, which companies that I work with are dependent on me racing at a world-class level, What you know, how much of picky bars is due to people following my athletic career versus the bars or the business or the ethos. And... There was so much fear. And then it wasn't that I waited until I felt like, oh, yeah, it'll be great. I feel like these relationships will be fine. I feel like, oh, yeah, I I looked for the evidence and picky bars will be fine. It was more just I decided I'm going to lose what I'm going to lose. Things will shift. People will go. Companies will go. Picky bars will do what it does. It doesn't really matter. I need the change anyway. You know? And so that was... That's why it's been, I've been lighter because I'm not waiting for a shoe to drop. I'm not afraid of being walked out on, you know? And was there a moment in kind of you deciding to retire? Was there a moment where it it hit you like, okay, this is what I want to do. I'm going to talk with Jesse. I'm going to talk with Wazelle. Or was it like a gradual process? I'd say it was like a gradual torturous process. Peeling off my skin <laughs> with a dull peeler is what it felt like, <laughs> and I think I felt like I had, you know, I had a moment where I called Sally Bergeson at Wazell, and she's a just such a close friend as well as a business partner, and talked to her about 
what I was starting to feel like was going to be the reality. And that was like a 1030 at night phone call, you know, with tears involved. And then it was like, I don't know, I'd probably had 20 talks with Jesse. But we do this thing, I may have talked about this podcast before, where we like project the worst case scenario, where, you know, say Jesse has a sore heel, and he'll be like, well, I probably have Achilles tendonitis like you did, and I'll probably have to get surgery, and I'll be out for a year. And then who knows what will happen to my career. And then it's like, verbalizing the worst case scenario somehow makes it better because then I can look at him and be like, well, I'm still here. Jude's still here. You'll be fine. And you just, you can kind of feel that, that the most important things will still be there. Um, So I think I I had lots of those conversations with Jesse. So I don't know how seriously he took (laughs) the retirement thing, but he's been lighter too. I think it's just been good for everybody. It was just because it was the right thing. Yeah. And you shared with people about it in your own way. And then the New York Times also shared about it. Mm -hmm. How did it feel to have it be such a public thing and like people hearing about your retirement that don't even know about professional running or know your name? Yeah. The New York Times piece by Lindsey Krauss was honestly, it was like a huge gift. Um, I feel very fortunate to have had that kind of coverage, I guess. I don't know. It just, it felt, it was such an honor to have um, to have my story shared in a bigger way. I think also <clears throat> since the Olympics was coming up, I had always imagined 2016 ending a certain way and I'd visualized it and prepared for it. You know, I'm talking for years, right? And it was going to end in a public um, display of what I was capable of deep down, the culmination of 20 one years of work, of learning, of pushing myself, of the comebacks, you know, the um, that catharsis that you always see in the movies or read about in the books that is so satisfying. And I always kind of, what got me through was visualizing that happening in my career. So when letting go was, was different for me than, say, Michael Phelps, who's letting go after an Olympics because I had to choose to end the story in a place that was totally different than I visualized. And I'd probably say most athletes have to do that more like the way I did than the way Michael Phelps did. Um, so it's not like it's unique to me, but it's still, it's, I think it, the, it's a little bit harder. It's not a storybook ending. And so I don't know, there was something about that New York Times piece that made it feel a little bit like a different kind of storybook ending. It was like, oh, okay, this story, the story that she told was a little bit more than an athletic obituary. It had a little bit more depth to it and, that idea of um, possibly being the fastest American distance runner not to make an Olympic team and having that not uh, be a failure to me, really. It's not a net failure. I feel like that's just an important story in general. It goes across sports to all kinds of things, right? Can we be satisfied? And we talked about that at the retreat a lot, like finding satisfaction in our reality and having that not be the same thing as settling. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I think that I want to get back to the idea of satisfaction, which we explored. But for the retirement, you shared about it at the Olympic trials with the Wazel team mm-hmm. um, through poetry. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the Olympic trials experience for you and what was it like to write about it and share your actual writing it was really that was a really challenging time. <laughs> um, the Olympic trials was ten straight days in Eugene with, gosh, like 
I don't know, I mean, all my peers over the years and new faces, upstarts, a hundred Wazal Volet that had flown in from around the country to watch the Olympic trials and be in community and do stuff together. And then Picky Bars was activating a tent there. So that was going on every day too. And we had our staff like sharing a house and with new employees and getting to know them and having my son there. So family, I mean, it was just like a collision of all worlds. Plus the fact that I'd never visualized myself not racing, right? So there was that, this thing that was supposed to be kind of like my last hurrah. I'm suddenly in that arena in all these different capacities. And, but not um, the capacity not that the, you actually <laughs> trained or prepared for. Yeah, totally. So it was, it was just, I'd say very, I was really tired after that. My God, I feel like we went up to, um, Squim, Washington for a family vacation and had a week at the ocean. And the timing of that could not have been better. It's like a family reunion thing that my husband's family does every other year in a different place. And um, I participated in almost no family activities there. It was like I woke up, I walked out to the beach, I stayed in the cabin. I didn't even really read. I don't even know what I did, honestly. I can't even tell you. But the days passed, and somehow the end of the vacation came, and I felt so much better. And that was during the time – that was right when the announcement was getting ready, when I had kind of made up my mind. I think I was sort of like just preparing myself and getting really peaceful about it. Yeah, for your compass to almost be reoriented yeah, it was in a public way. So lucky we got to go on that family trip when we did. Sometimes family vacations feel like the worst timing ever and sometimes they're like the best. And this was like the best. <laughs> At the Olympic trials, what was the most memorable race for you to watch? The women's 800 meters completely because it had two things in there that were so hard to put together. It was like oil and vinegar. And it was Kate Grace who I had previously coached, who's been a, you know one of the first Wazal athletes. And since I've been with Wazal for four years now, as a not just as an athlete, but as like a strategist and a team builder. And like I'm really invested in the success of Sally's dream and the business and all that. And Kate being one of the earliest investments by the team and watching her go from someone who on paper – no elite coach, no top coach was going to be like, she's going to be an Olympian for sure, you know. And she got a chance through Ozel to continue doing it and got the encouragement and and then built her confidence and worked her way up to working with a world-class coach in Drew Wartenberg and then winning the Olympic trials and making the Olympic team and like being so um, – she was just so – grateful and humble and present for the hundred women who'd flown across the country to watch athletes compete for their dreams. And when she, she gave a speech to everybody in the Wazal house, uh, we, we all celebrated her race that night. And um, yeah, she just was, it was just wonderful. I just felt like I was watching it a little bit from a distance, but just like, just really wowed. But then on the other hand, my childhood friend, Alicia Montano, I went to my high school, who, you know, we had the same high school coach. Um, we ate fries at the same McDonald's. I mean, we had the same, you know, we, we, we're, we're born from the same roots, you know. And um, she's, she 
has been in the news for a very uh, vocal person against doping. And she's been a little bit of the poster child for missing out on medal after medal after medal to Russian athletes who turned out to be exposed in state-sponsored doping um, this year. And she still hasn't, they still have to go through the court of arbitration of sport before she maybe gets those medals upgraded to her. But the fact that Russia was banned from track and field in the Olympics, it was like they were finally not going to be there. And it was she's made every U.S. team for what six years or something, six-time USA champ, I think. And this was the time for her. I really believed. I know she believed it. Uh, and and then she fell with 150 meters to go at the Olympic trials. And just I watched everybody who watched that race got to see a human's heart completely break. And I mean, it was the most raw thing. And so while I'm watching the race and I'm watching this woman who I love so much, who I've learned so much from, she's been a mentor to me, um, falling on the track, trying to get back up and having that struggle. She wrote about it beautifully on her website, but this feeling of like, how is it that you, your logical brain is telling you, get up, just finish, get up. You can finish the race. You always finish the race. And then the heart breaking kind of over and over again with no control over it. So standing up and then falling down and then standing up and then falling down. And there were people who watched that race that criticized it as being overly dramatic. You know, there was all, a lot of criticism, but Alicia is nothing but real and raw. Always. That's who she is. She's like the most naked human. And she loves to be naked. Side note. But that's another thing. <laughs> She's <laughs> funny. <laughs> High school stories abound. But um, she um, she just was naked out there. And it was like, wow, Google that race if you haven't seen it. Um, it's hard to watch. But I think that everything, everything you need to know about pursuing the Olympics and being an Olympic sport athlete, whether it's in diving, gymnastics, running, cycling, triathlon, all these things we watch on TV once every four years, that women's 800 really captures the agony and the ecstasy that is present. And so, you know, she didn't make the team and she had to come up with a, a new plan. And I mean, she handled it like a boss, to be honest. She really did. So we just got together a couple weeks ago and had a really good time together. She came and visited me in Bend. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, she's an extremely strong woman and it is heartbreaking. And I think there's a, to be able to be um, just present enough to actually let your heart, yourself be heartbroken in a race amazes me. Because yeah. like you, you can see someone going through the physical trauma and experience of not making it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think some people would almost shut themselves out from it or kind of paralyzed be so paralyzed by it but like she actually felt she felt it mm -hmm. and that's and why that's brave. I really believe if she had not been tripped we were gonna see something spectacular in that last 150 meters because if your heart is naked enough and exposed enough to break that visibly in front of millions of people watching on tv it's also primed to do something extraordinary have you ever had a race where you felt heartbroken during or after? Hmm. I mean, I've had my heart broken in races before, but I, I think never like that. I think it's different when it's taken away 
from by somebody else and I'm not, you know not that it's on purpose but she didn't get to control her own destiny because I, I do feel like I always had control over my own destiny there was no other person that took it away I had races where I had this mysterious stomach cramp that I've had off and on since I was 17 years old that I've had to drop out of races before and that was really frustrating but I always felt like it was a problem that maybe could be fixed so while I'd be mad and I'd maybe cry about it, I, I more was just like determined, okay, why am I getting this cramp? There has to be a solution. And I would go into problem solving mode, but there's no problem to solve by getting tripped. You're tripped. You got tripped. There's no silver lining there. You're not going to find anything constructive out of that, right? Yeah. It just happened and it sucked. So no, I've never had my heart broken like that. When you watched in the actual Olympics, the women's 800 meter final... Kate was competing in again and again, and there was a lot of talk about um, gender Mm -hmm. and the politics surrounding that. How does that land with you? I have a very complicated feeling about it. Um, For those that I'm sure most listeners have heard of Castor Semenya and the intersex um, athlete question, but for those who haven't... um, there are intersex athletes competing that have a, either XY chromosome instead of XX. I mean, gender, we like to think of it as binary, woman, man, but in reality, it's not. And um, I think it was Ross Tucker of Science and Sport who said estimated about four, one in 420-something female athletes at an Olympic level in track and field is probably intersex. Uh, versus maybe what is it one in three thousand in the general population because there's going to be a selection you're gonna if you're an intersex athlete who's hypo um, who has hypoandrogenism that means that you have more testosterone you, you actually can produce and 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 use more testosterone than an XX chromosome woman can and so it really is a different category in a way. Um, as far as sports is concerned. But then the way we look at gender or the way I believe we should look at gender and many people believe we should look at gender is that it's um, it's it's fluid and dynamic and it's on a spectrum and it's a kind of like a choice versus your sex, which is not a choice, right? Your gender is a choice, how you express your gender. and um, But in sports, we can't do that. You can't just decide I'm going to be a woman, because a wo- women are a protected category in sport. They're protected by law. You know, Title IX has protected that category to have equal opportunities because we have less testosterone than men, and testosterone is the deciding factor between it creating more strength, endurance, and power. And that's why the best women in the world, the best woman in the world, won't crack the top 500 men in any sport except for, I think, equestrian is what I've read. And so if we didn't have a protected category and we didn't work hard to protect it for women, there would be no women's sports. And so you you look at it from that perspective and it's very clear, intersex athletes, it's not fair for them to compete in the women's protected category um, with testosterone levels that if a XX woman had them, they would be banned from the sport because it would be clear they were doping and that's a clear violation. And so it, but these women who are intersex, they have it um, naturally. And so it's tempting to look at that as like, well, how, how is that really any different than, in a, than the genetic mutation that makes Usain Bolt's legs longer? Or 
that makes, you know, whatever you could, you could say that makes um, all of these athletes fit into that 1%. They all have some genetic freak thing about them, but it, it is different because it, the, the genetic factor we're talking about is the differentiator between the men's category and the women's category. It involves testosterone. And so it's just such a complicated question and it's, it's going to be unfair to somebody no matter how we address it. It's either unfair to the intersex athletes or it's unfair to the athletes that are not intersex in the protected category who really aren't on a level playing field. And so it's hard to know what to do. I think um, the solution, as far as I'm concerned, is science, the um, Court of Arbitration for Sport had made the decision that um, what had been previously done to level the playing field was to have uh, intersex athletes have hormone supplementation that made their hormone profile um, a level playing field with the other elite women around them. And Castor Semenya used to have to do that. And when she was doing the hormone supplementation, um, it was she was more even. She won sometimes, she didn't win sometimes. It was kind of more of a classic trajectory of the other women in the race. But then the Court of Arbitration for Sport overturned it and his evidence was brought kind of from the human rights side saying that she shouldn't have to take anything because there wasn't um, significant evidence showing that testosterone made the difference. And if you talk to any scientist, they'll say the evidence is there that testosterone makes a difference. But if, if scientists haven't presented it in a way that's convincing that intersex athletes feel good about, and all of us can feel, we can all agree on, then it isn't fair to people like Castor to have to do hormone supplementation. So I think the, I feel like the, the correct decision was made leading into this Olympics that, Hey, if you haven't proven it well enough, then you can't single these athletes out and have them do a different protocol. And yeah, it sucks to be a normal XX woman and compete in that environment, but it's not Castor Semenya's fault. And it's, um, and, and like, this is just, this is just the process of figuring out how to deal with this complicated issue. But in 2017, they're going to readdress it and, and people will have the opportunity to really analyze the science and present it. And everybody would have to, you know, the, all the important people will have to buy in and and get on the same page. And I suspect that there will, in the future, be um, be a, a, some sort of a, a throwback to the supplementation or the all you know the leveling of hormone situation again, which would be which I think would be more fair. But I just don't think it's fair to do that until it's been adequately proven and demonstrated in a way that people can all feel good about. Yeah. So do you feel like in 2020 for the Olympics, there will probably be new protocol and new standards by then if it's being revisited in 2017? I do. I'll be surprised if there's not. Yeah. Watching some of the women's races, for me, there was a lot of kind of murmurs and talks of doping. Mm-hmm. What did you see or what did you feel? I still don't have confidence in Ethiopia and Kenya's doping, um, anti-doping system. And I think there's lots of reasons, very good reasons to be skeptical um, from 
the, you know, Jama Aiden, the coach of so many Ethiopian and, uh, whatever, a lot of, a lot of Olympic medalists, world champs, record holders, having his hotel broken into and EPO being found and used needles and all these things. And all of that happened pretty close to the Olympics. So there's still, um, we still don't know the verdict of what's going to be done about that. But there were athletes of his competing in the Olympics. And it's just, it's impossible to watch that and trust, trust those performances. And then Kenya, I mean, Kenya just has, Kenya has uh, all kinds of problems. Um, and they've had, uh, you know, every, in, it was like international news that one of their Kenyan national team officials attempted to take a drug test for one of the athletes. This is like a six-year-old man pretending to be an athlete to do the urine test instead of the athlete. And another Kenyan official is caught on camera saying that uh, for $10,000 or whatever it was, I'll alert you before you get um, tested to the, you know, to athletes. And it's like, there's just, there's things going on. And uh, watching the Olympics didn't make me wish I was there. It made me glad that I'm retired because you, you put in your heart and soul into that sport. And I just, I'm, I'm very aware that if I were to have continued competing at that level, the amount of personal sacrifice, family sacrifice, the amount of um, like medical commitment to figuring out this cramp, to rehabbing the Achilles, to keeping this 34 year old body, which takes so much more work. Like I, all the massage and PT and it's so much. And then even if the training goes well and you don't get hurt and your medical team can kind of keep you patched together and your body is functioning, you're still competing against people cheating. And how heartbreaking is that? It's really hard. It feels depressing to talk about because it almost makes it seem like it's not worth it. Um, at this point in my career, it is not worth it. At 28, it was worth it anyway. Because at 28, I wanted to see how fast I could be. That was it was like, I don't really care. Yeah, it sucks there's people cheating, but it doesn't change the fact that I don't know how fast I can be yet. And seeing how fast I can be at an ultimate level doesn't, it's, it's, I'm not curious about that anymore. I'm curious about how fast I can be while running picky bars and having Jude and, um, and riding my mountain bike twice a week or whatever. Yeah. So what do you, what has been your relationship to running now right now what is it like what space is it holding in your life oh it's like the best running is the best I think the coolest thing that I've learned since retiring is that um I just love to run hell yeah (laughs) (laughs) I don't need a race on the schedule to motivate me right now and that that could change but I I wake up and I still think about running first thing in the morning I don't do it every day but I hope to, in the future, I hope to do it every day as my heel gets stronger and as I kind of develop a little bit more rhythm in my life and whatever the next phase is, I, I love it. I love it. At the Wilder Running and Waiting Retreat, we talked about wilder running. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And like, how do you feel like you embody that in your relationship to running? I think the embodiment of wilder running like that is I am there right now which is funny because when we came up with the idea a year ago I was far from it it was like a dream for me 
in my own life to have this wilder running. And to me, wilder running is is a a um, being anchored in the absolute basic, like youthful approach to running, which is just it feels good to run, to see the places you can go on two feet that you can't get to in a car, to um, to feel your body being squeezed and stretched and pulled and wrung out, to, um, to feel your breath synchronizing with your steps, to do that little dance of being inside yourself and then seeing something around you that kind of pulls you out whether it's the river or cars or kids playing in a park. And then next thing you know, you're back in yourself with your breath and your footsteps. And then you're outside yourself. And it's like this like pulsing that you have in a run. Um, and you had a run this summer that I felt like was totally a wilder running experience where you got lost. Which one? The one where you got lost when you were at the muse camp. Oh gosh. <laughs> that was like totally wilder running. <laughs> that was such an extreme day. Oh man. Yeah, I had this run where so I'm almost exactly a year. I think when this podcast comes out, I'll be a year post surgery on my heel. And uh, doctors would be like, well, it'll either be three or four months until you're back or a year. And I was like, oh, God, why does it have to be one of the two of those? Please don't let it be the second one. Please don't let it be the second one. And, of course, it was the second one. Uh, but at least it's better. <laughs> and next thing you know, a year's by, uh, gone by. So I very gradually from about seven months out until now, so it's been five months of what has felt like the world's slowest progression, but just listening to my body, what can it do, what can't it do? It was really important not to have an agenda, not to have a goal or a date it, that my foot needed to be ready by so I could listen to my body. And now I really feel like it's better. And so I was out at this, um, out in Sisters, Oregon, staying at the Five Pine Lodge right before Muse Camp. And I was I was going to go for a trail run on the Peterson Ridge Trail. And I was, I'm, just, I'm still just giddy. You know, like the first time I ran long enough to do a loop, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to do a loop. <laughs> it's been like a year since I did a loop. And now this run. Next, it's going to be a lollipop loop. Yeah, no. a lollipop loop. And this, this run was like, wow, am I? I think my heel might be healthy enough to do an out and back to like a view, you know, like of one of those really dramatic viewpoints. And I said, I think that about four miles out is a beautiful view of the Sisters Mountain Range, like on the top of Peterson Ridge. So I got so excited. I'm like, I'm going to see if I can do it. And I'd only run eight miles once before that. And so I still was trying to really listen to my body. And if it hurt, started hurting, I was going to stop or whatever. But I make it the four miles to the viewpoint and I walk on these lava rocks to get all the way out to the edge and the trees open up and there's, you know, South sister, middle sister, North sister, and they're just spread out in front of me. And it's one of those things where the air is so clear and free from particulates that you feel like you can reach out and touch these giant mountains and the space between you and them just disappears. And it was so cool. And it totally gave me goosebumps and I started crying and, um, you know, it was a little bit like one of those movie scene cries where you start to you start to cry a little and then you're like, oh, am I crying? I should let myself cry. I should just, no one's here. I should just let myself cry. You kind of like, I was a little awkward. But anyway, I, then I started crying all the way and it felt really good. And then I just was like, okay, 
I'm going to run back now. I start running back. I'm like, I'm going to blog about this. I haven't blogged about a running experience in so long. And I start thinking about the blog in my mind and I'm so euphoric. And and then about three miles later, I realize I am nowhere near where the beginning of the run was. It just doesn't look right. It doesn't feel right. I have that sinking feeling that somewhere I took a wrong turn. I just didn't know how far. And Luckily, I saw a woman on a horse, which for a lot of people listening to this, they're like, and you ran into a woman on a horse. This is Sister's Organ. There's people on horses in a lot of places. Stopped her and she's like, oh, honey, you're down by the rodeo. You're a long way from the Five Pine Lodge. I'm like, oh, God, no, what do I do? And the trails were just a maze and I just had no idea how to get back. Can you just point me in the direction? All the junipers look the same. Where is the Five Pine Lodge? She kind of points to it. She's like, I recommend you follow the sound of those cars on Highway 20 and you just run towards the highway because then you can just run up the highway and you know you'll find it. So that's what I did. And when I got to the highway, I had three miles more. So I ended up running 11 and a half miles. <laughs> and a lot of it. in over a year? Oh, yeah, like a year and a half. I was walking a lot of it. I was cramping up. It was super hot. I was dehydrated. I hadn't eaten a normal breakfast that I would do for an 11-mile run because I thought I was running for six to eight. So I don't know. I was. It was just it was just really kind of hilarious. I had no phone. I couldn't call anybody. I was just like, okay, I'm going to just walk in the median with big semi trucks flying past me at 70 miles an hour on a two lane highway. And I'm just going to do this for the next 45 minutes (laughs) until I'm back. (laughs) I love how quickly things can change when you're running. Like you can literally be on top of the world, like looking out at these beautiful mountains. And then like a couple minutes later, you're just in the weeds. Yeah, getting hit by cinder debris from passing semis. Yeah, it was just not pleasant. Yeah. It, but you made it. I made it. I made it. But it's still, I'm running long enough now to get lost, which is a gift. Totally. Totally. We spoke in the retreat a lot about staying within yourself and finding a level of satisfaction because mm-hmm. it is so easy to get into spaces of comparison, whether it's comparing our bodies to one another. Oh, she's faster than me. He's faster than me. Can you explore that a little bit, this idea of like staying within yourself and how that's showing up for you in your life? Yeah, I think um, I think there's two things. There's staying within yourself and then there's staying with yourself. And I think the most powerful one is actually, for me, has been the staying with yourself. And um, what Marianne Elliott was talking a lot about is she talked a lot about the ways we leave ourselves, uh, whether that's to a Netflix binge or um, alcohol to numb us or drugs or, um, I mean, whatever. There's lots of ways to leave yourself. And um, I think, you know, listening to music or a podcast when you run even is a way of, of leaving yourself. And I actually don't think it's bad to leave yourself sometimes. But I think that if you are in a place in your life where you are trying to make a change or you really want to you're, – you're hoping to get some kind of clarity around how you feel about something, you need to leave yourself as little as possible because you have to – you need those um, those awkward, quiet moments and you need those spaces for things to to make themselves known right and they won't every time you leave yourself you're you're blocking it we did this exercise at the wilder retreat that really brought this to life for me um 
we did a couple different exercises, but one of them was we had these small groups and you would have a set amount of time to talk in the group. So let's say you had four people in your group <clears throat> and then we would each have four minutes. And in that four minutes, you would talk about a prompt. So one of them was like, what's working on you right now? Like what's working on you in this retreat? What, like, what particular thing is challenging you or turning something over or whatever? And then you start the timer and no one else can say anything. They can't respond conversationally. They can't offer assurance. They can't, they can't say anything. And you have the whole four minutes. So you talk, nobody gives you any feedback. You just talk. Maybe you think you're out of things to say, and but no one else is allowed to say anything until the timer. So it's just silent. Next thing you know, something comes. And you wouldn't, if, if in that silent space, other people had been allowed to respond, it would have change the trajectory of the conversation and you never would have had that second thought and that you know what I mean and the same thing we we'd pull through in our writing where um, she teaches this wild writing that comes from Lori Wagner or first thought writing from Natalie Goldberg which is that you just keep the pen moving for a certain amount of time and if you um, even if you don't know what to say you lose you lose your story you're never supposed to stop the pen. So you just maybe repeat, this is stupid, this is stupid, or you write the, write the prompt over and over again, and eventually something will flow out. And in looking at my notebook, I had um, a writing exercise like that where I had written, 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 and then it was just like, I remember, the prompt was, I remember, I remember, I remember, I remember, I remember, and then another thing came out. And so it was a really powerful visual to look at the pages and see idea and then nothing, 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 idea, nothing, 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 nothing. And that it was giving myself permission to have the spaces of nothing without a distraction, without leaving myself that let those other ideas come. It was super powerful for me. Yeah, it was so powerful. We were in the same small group where we had to talk to one another, you know, and not give each other reassurance. And it reminded me of I read this book and I've shared about this on the podcast before by this man named John Francis. And he did this incredible journey where he walked around the US and then walked around South America in silence for 17 years. And he said one of the biggest learning experiences he had from it was he realized whenever he was talking to someone, he was always always thinking about what his response was going to be. Or when they were talking, he was going to think about what his response was going to be instead of just listening. And I found that it's like when we listen to one another, when I listen to you in our small group or we listen to Marianne and didn't respond, it's like you're just able to take in someone's words so much more fully. Yeah, that is true. I definitely remember a moment when you were talking where I could feel every time I had a reaction to want to say something or if I got quiet, I wanted to say something. And then I rem remembered, I don't have to say anything. I don't need to think about the response, yeah, and and then hearing you actually talk for that whole time, it it was it was it was really cool. It was really cool to just listen. Yeah. So, how are you gonna take the wilder writing or kind of the juice that you got from this weekend back into your writing? I'm definitely gonna have a writing practice. So I'm I'm gonna commit to writing for five minutes every single day at a, at a minimum. So I've. Yeah, that's one thing. That was just from the very obvious realization that in running, you don't wait around for inspiration to run, right? If you, you run every day or you run according to your plan, you show up. 
on the days when it's raining, you just get it done. The days when you feel good, you feel bad, you just do it. And then you're in shape for running so that your uh, body is has some sort of level of base preparedness so that on the days when you are going to feel good, you get to you get to really nail it, right? You get to take advantage of it. And so with my writing, I've definitely been waiting for more inspiration. I've taken that approach. And I just, I think it, it, it just clicked for me, the importance of doing what may feel like purposeless, rambling shit writing, like just doing something so that you're ready, um, so that you're in shape for I, when ideas come. I, there was a good amount of mothers at the retreat. And mm-hmm. I think with mothers and fathers, like there's always, and maybe just all human beings, there's always like this fear or this fear of like, how do you balance it all? How do you be like a good runner and a good writer and a good mother or father and show up at your work? Mm-hmm. How do you see kind of the the balance in your life right now? Or what resonance, what does that mean to you of like balancing running, balancing writing, all of your different responsibil- responsibilities? Um, I don't know. I think just what I'm thinking about more is just being present for the things that I'm doing when I'm doing them, as I was talking about earlier. Um, I would say I'm still a work in progress right now in knowing the specifics of how I want to divide that time. I've given myself a gift to not rush into whatever the next thing is. Uh, and I'm giving myself the gift of <clears throat> cutting off inertia because I don't want inertia from what I've done to be the thing that determines what I continue to do. So, and that is a privilege. That is a privilege that I'm in a financial situation right now to give myself time, almost like a sabbatical. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so to I'm, rewire. To rewire, yeah. I'm very grateful. I'm extremely grateful for that. That is something a, that most of the world and most of the country does not have. So I'm, I own that, <laughs> that I have that. And, um, and so I have it, and so I'm going to use it. And I'm going to give myself um, probably another month or two and let the dust settle and um, take this look around and see what's left. What's, what's left what wants to bloom instead of what should bloom? What should I do? What what makes sense or whatever? I mean, I don't know. I just want I'm starting with a clean slate. And I have worked hard the last few years to plant seeds and develop some skills outside of professional running. So I have options. So I'm really I'm proud of myself for doing that during my injuries that I wasn't languishing around just weeping and hitting myself on the back <laughs> um, that I took the time to do other things and and meet people that could open my eyes to new things, invest in relationships. So yeah, I think I've got those, um, some seeds planted and I'm just like, which ones am I going to water? Which ones am I going to let wilt? And, and uh, so I, and I, I just don't feel like I have the pressure to have it figured out this very second. I think five years ago, I would have I would have been really afraid of taking time like this, that somehow I would um, <clears throat> become complacent or subtle or lose my drive or become lazy. Uh, like somehow who I actually am at the core of me would disappear. They needed to just push, 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 push. 
I don't feel that way now. I have confidence that <clears throat> that I like to live with purpose and I like to work hard at whatever the things are that I choose. I like working hard at them. So I just want to be thoughtful about what those things are. In this fall, one of the things that will be coming out so is your new journal, your new mm. book. Yeah. What is that? And what was what is that like different? Because I feel like you were talking about this idea of the garden and the weeds and planting the seeds. And that's been a huge thing like with language that Ro and you, your co-author of the Believe Training Journal, have talked about in your kind of manifesto. Yeah. So what is this next chapter for you guys? Well, the Compete Training Journal, it's just funny how life works, right? The book's coming out in November. But we were working on this for the last year, basically, and really intensively in the spring um, and winter last year. So it's like back then, um, the idea of focusing on competition. So this book fo focuses on competition. It's not focused on being the best in the world. It It's on the um, the basic principles of getting the most out of yourself, whatever your level is, as far as how Ro and I have learned over the years. <clears throat> and of course, what we've learned, we've learned as professional athletes, but we've also learned as coaches from coaching a variety of athletes. And then she's learned through sports psychology. Um, and what I've also learned from my exposure to people outside the running world and finding those connections and truths that can be pulled back into competition. So things from yoga or you know, other things, things from writing, and um, and so, yeah, all 12 of the chapters for each month are dive into a different nuance of competition. And um, I am just thrilled to see how it's received and to get it out into the world. And um, I don't know what kind of book tour, if we're going to do a book tour or not. I'm not sure. It's, I didn't really let myself think about it until after this retreat, to be honest. So we got the work done. We turned, we labored over the chapters, over the pictures, over the quotes, over everything, and then we turned it in. And then it went to the printer. And then it, then it's just kind of gone for a couple of months. So your brain can finally do something else. So I'll be, I'll be plugging into that for sure. And what's next for Wilder? Well, I have weekends booked for 2017. So it's another thing where I didn't really let myself think about it until after this one. I was prepared that if I didn't enjoy this experience or I just felt that I was not good at it or couldn't hold the space for people the way I felt they should be held, um, that, I sh that I shouldn't do another one. And so I was just going to eat the deposit <laughs> for the other space and just kind of be like, okay. But I feel, I feel really good about it. I feel like it went way better than I could have hoped or dreamed and I feel energized to do another one. So... It'll just be about putting putting our heads together and thinking about the future and yeah. But I think I think we got a couple weeks to do that. But uh, after I know after this podcast, Jules and I are going to be hashing out what worked, what didn't, even the banal things like did we order too much orange juice, <laughs> too many bananas, yeah, all those things. Runners can never have too many bananas. No, I feel like the bananas. We nailed the bananas. Maybe not the apples, though. Yeah, we got too many apples. <laughs> They're now in your house. 
<laughs> I need to make some pies because we cannot eat those before they go bad. There's like 36 apples. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> you want to take some home? <laughs> or Elise Kopecki, who just came out with Run Fast Eat Slow. Oh, yeah. She has an incredible cookbook and she was a member of the Wilder Retreat and gave us a really beautiful presentation. But, you know, the peach crumble we had for dessert, she said it can be done with any fruit. Really? Yeah. That, that was a really good crumble. So an apple crumble. Speaking of Elise, you just reminded me of um, something I'd want to just shout out would be some of the most powerful moments for me. One was seeing Elise Kopecki present her book and her cooking workshop because, I mean, I knew Elise way back in the day, 12 years ago or something and um, at Nike and she had been a competitor against Stan, you know, Stanford and University of North Carolina were rivals. So Shalane Flanagan's school, Shalane and Elise were teammates. And our Stanford team wanted to beat them more than anything. And they wanted to beat us. So we, you know, we, we started off with that kind of relationship. And then I was a Nike athlete and she worked at Nike. We didn't see each other very often, but I would see her. And, you know, I just, I don't know, she was just kind of a person that worked there that I knew barely. And then, um, and then she moved to Bend and we got together and she talked about her new passion, which was like a huge change from working in marketing and branding and stuff at Nike. It was, it was, it was, um, food, like indulgent nourishment and finding a way to get runners to be less scared of, of fats and, um, and less obsessed with calorie counts. And I mean, she's just, it's brilliant what she and Shalane have done. It really is. It's its a beautiful book. But the thing that I got to learn this weekend was, was the authenticity and um, honesty and the truthfulness of the story that drove the project. You know, it's hard to know that when you just pick up a book, it's like, how did this really come to be? And people have their origin stories. And sometimes they're, they're not really real. They're kind of commercialized or they're trying to work you over somehow to make you think it's real because they know stories are important. But it, it, seeing her talk, I was like, no, this is real. Like this is, this, her, she is a symbol of how real it is and the giant leap of faith she took in leaving this extremely successful, solid career that she had built equity in for years to do something like this, that there's a lot of cookbooks in the world, Right. And um, I wouldn't say that a new cookbook is what people would say we necessarily need like, from a, a broad perspective, but this, it really does offer something different. So I was, I just was very uh, moved by her and um, her words and her persona. It's always, I think my favorite thing to watch is a woman blooming and like coming into herself and stepping closer to what she's really meant to do and really good at and to be in your mid thirties and a lot of those kinds of things start happening in your late twenties and early and mid thirties for my friends. And it's just, I just felt like I was witnessing a, a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I think there'll be listeners of all ages listening to this and, you know, wondering how can they step into their truth or how can they step into their own blooming process? Cause it's, it's almost like what you, we've talked about today is that you've, you know, you've bloomed and blossomed again and again. And right now with your retirement, is this new, is this new rewiring? Is this new blossoming? What kind of advice do you have for people to find their, yeah, their truth right now or their ability to blossom in their lives? I think writing is a really powerful tool. Journaling, 
possibly exploring a writing workshop. It can just be something in your town that is a one-day thing even. Just learning some of the practices of writing and some of the practices of getting closer to like what's true for you. Because if you can get in touch with it with yourself, you don't have to take action on it right away. But just trying to find ways to get unstuck from that inertia of our lives and make sure that we're re-choosing the things that we're doing, um, that we're giving ourselves opportunities to evolve. You need pauses. You need those spaces between things in order to do that. You need those deep breath moments to do that. And I think there's a lot of fear. I can understand the fear of what will I discover if I let myself breathe? Will I want a different marriage? Will I want a different life? Um, And I just still invite people to do it because I have met very few people who have thrown away everything that they have. (laughs) And I've actually never met anybody yet who has made a dramatic life change, even the most dramatic life changes that that regretted it. So I think just, um, I had my moments of fear of lots of moments of fear of, of taking a good hard look at my relationship with my career and, uh, and, and afraid of what I would find and, and I don't regret it. Um, so yeah, I would say try writing. (laughs) Thank you, Lauren. Yeah. Thank you, Jules. I can't believe we had a whole year together and how different we both are a year later, like looking at you and just knowing your life and what you're doing. And I did, it's just, it's beautiful. So it's been a pleasure working with you and, and doing the things we've done together. Right I feel really proud. You. I, yeah, it's an honor to get to hear you and be a part of your life. And thank you. <laughs> Thanks. What a joy it is to have Lauren back on Rue and reflect on the past summer and changes in her life this past year. If you want to get plugged into the Wilder Retreats for 2017, join the email list on wilderrunning.com. And as always, Lauren and I love to hear from all of you. So reach out on Twitter or Instagram and share what moved you from this conversation. If you tune into Rue regularly and want to give back to it, the easiest way you can do that, that takes no money in just two minutes, is to leave an iTunes review of the podcast. You can actually do it right now from your phone. Click on the reviews tab and even a one sentence review makes a world of difference. Reviews improve Rue's visibility in the iTunes interface so that more like-minded people can find the podcast and help Rue grow. Please know that I've read every single iTunes review and I'm so, so touched by your words. I wish I could take the time to thank each and every one of you individually on here. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for supporting Running on Ohm. Deep gratitude to each and every one of you. Yes, you. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a rue-filled day.